Well, hello, everyone. Uh, I hope so far you've had a good last day of unleavened bread and, of course, the entire days of unleavened bread. Um, it's such a special time. God has blessed us so much to be able to have this wonderful feast, a feast that pictures so much. Um, of course, the, the Jews keep this, and uh, but we have something special. We have God's Holy Spirit. We have God's Spirit working in us and with us and His church. And through keeping these days, we can see the spiritual importance of them and apply it to our lives. What a special, wonderful, wonderful opportunity that God blesses us with. It really is. Um, of course, through the Days of Unleavened Bread, we've deleavened our homes. We have, uh, we've put leaven out of our lives, both physically and spiritually. We've worked on that. Um, and we have focused on the unleavened bread of Jesus Christ. We've focused on eating the unleavened bread every day, not just putting the leaven out of our lives and not just not eating leavened bread, but eating the unleavened bread of Jesus Christ, and of course, physically as well. Um, let's turn to Exodus 13. Exodus 13. And we'll read the story of when Israel came out of Egypt. Uh, of course, the this time, right now, uh, it's pictured here. This very time that they went through this uh, coming out of Egypt. Let's read it in Exodus 13 and verse 3. And Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you went out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. For by strength of hand the Lord brought you out of this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. That's what we've been doing. Verse 6. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten seven days, and no leavened bread shall be seen among you, nor shall leaven be seen among you in all your quarters. Again, that's what we've done. And you shall, verse 8, <clears throat> and you shall tell your son in that day, saying, This is done because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. Verse 9, it shall be as a sign to you on your hand and a memorial between your eyes that the Lord's law may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this ordinance in its season from year to year. And that's what we're doing. That's what we're doing. Now, traditionally, on the last day of unleavened bread, uh, the church is taught that, and we understand, that Israel passed through the Red Sea during that time. They, of course, before uh, they left, uh, the God uh, caused plagues to be on Egypt, that Israel took part in some, and afterwards God separated them. Then they left Egypt and at the last day of unleavened bread, that time, they were faced with 
a choice. Choice of moving forward and going through the Red Sea or death, on the other hand, with Pharaoh and with the Egyptian army after them. Let's go to Exodus. Uh, We're still in Exodus 13, and we'll pick up the story here as they're on their way out of Egypt and they're coming up to the Red Sea. Verse 17, Then it came to pass, when Pharaoh had let the people go, that God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest perhaps they change their mind when they see war and want to return to Egypt, or return to Egypt. Verse 18, So God led the people around by the way of the wilderness of the Red Sea, and the children of Israel went in orderly ranks, went up in orderly ranks out of the land. Verse 20, so they took the journey from Succoth and camped in Etham at the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went up, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, and the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so as to go by day and night. And he did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. God was there. God was guiding them. He was protecting them. He was making sure they knew where to go. He was leading them. Now let's continue the story in verse in chapter 14. I'm sorry. Now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they turn and camp before Pi-Hahirath, between Migdal and the sea, opposite Baal-Zephon. You shall camp before it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say to the children of Israel, or for, will say of the children of Israel, they're bewildered by the land. The wilderness has closed them in. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're doing. They're going this way. They're crazy. Then I will harden, God says, then I will harden Pharaoh's heart, verse 4, so that he will pursue them. And I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army, that the Egyptians may know that I am the eternal. And they did so. Now it was told the king of Egypt that the people had fled and the heart of Pharaoh and his servants was turned against the people. And, he, and they said, why have we done this? Why did we let Israel go? We shouldn't have let them go. All the money they've made for us, all the things that they've done for us as slaves, we had them around our pinky. We had total control over them. Verse 6 So he made ready his chariots and took his people with him. And he also took 600 chariots, choice chariots, and all the chariots of Egypt with captains over every one of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and he pursued the children of Israel. And the children uh, children of Israel went out with boldness. So the king of Egypt... Pharaoh, the Egyptian army, and the people of Egypt are are following after and going to pursue the Israelites and take over the Israelites. So the Egyptians, verse 9, pursued them, all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army, and overtook them, camping by the sea beside Pi-Hahirath, 
before Baal-Zephon. And when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. So the children of Israel, what do we do? They, they don't have any weapons. They don't have any means to, to kill the Egyptians. The Egyptians are coming with their armies, with their spears, with their swords, with their shields. How is it going to turn out? Verse 10. And the children of Israel lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them, and they were very afraid. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, because there were no graves in Egypt, you have taken us away to die in the wilderness. Why have us come out here and die? Why have us all executed in mass here? Couldn't we have just died back there? Why did you have to get involved, Moses? Why have you so dealt with us? Why did you have to get in our lives, God? It was better back in Egypt. Things were smoother. They were easier. We didn't have even the same fear we have now. Why have you so dealt with us, verse 11, the end of verse 11, to bring us up out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we told you in Egypt? Didn't we tell you this was going to happen? Let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than we should die, than we should die in the wilderness. Life would have just been better if you would just stayed out of it, Moses. And just let us cling on to what we had back in Egypt. It wasn't the best, but it would have been better rather than dying out here and be faced with this terrible situation. So here they are now in an incredible predicament. Right in front of them is the Red Sea that they can't pass through. On one side is mountains they can't cross. And in another, Pharaoh and the Egyptian armies are coming after them. They were all on foot. They were entirely unprepared for war. No weapons, not ready to fight at all. They had women and children. There is only one outcome that was ahead of them, especially if they put up any resistance. And that was total massacre. That would have been genocide, the wiping out of the Israelite people. We know that's not what God had in store for them. We know he had something much bigger than that. And he told us he would lead them down this way so that he would be honored by Pharaoh and the Egyptians. But to them, all they saw was total annihilation, watching their loved ones get killed right in front of them. 
watching each other get killed. And there was no way this could possibly work out. No way that this could work out. Only one outcome was going to happen here in their minds. They had no way to escape, no way to fight. They had an impossible situation. No way out. They were afraid for their lives and gave in fully to this fear. I'd like to read from the uh, pulpit commentary in regard to this uh, aspect of the story. It says, It has been argued that the Israelites, if they were so numerous as stated, must have been wretched cowards if they were afraid to risk an engagement with such an army as it hastily, uh, as is hastily level, levied with that Pharaoh had brought together. But the difference between an army of trained soldiers, thoroughly equipped for war with helmets, shields, breastplates, swords, and spears, uh, spears, and an undisciplined multitude, on the other hand, unarmed for the most part, wholly unaccustomed to warfare, that is the Israelites, of course, is such that the latter, whatever its numbers may be excused, if it does not feel able to cope with the army, with the former, and declines an engagement. Numbers without military training and discipline are of no avail. Even the, the, the vast numbers of the Israelites, of no avail to this, this Egyptian army. Nay, are even a disadvantage, th these numbers. Since the men impede one another, it is not necessary to suppose that the Israelites were debased in character by their long servitude uh, to account for their panic and seeing the army of Pharaoh. They had good grounds for their fear. Humanly speaking, resistance would simply have led to their indiscriminate massacre. The army of the Hebrews, the alarm of the Hebrews, and even the reproaches with which they assailed Moses are thus quite natural under the circumstances. They had death and massacre in front of them with no way out. Now these were written for an example to us. These stories were written and recorded for us to learn from. And there are spiritual lessons here that we can draw from. That's what I want to do. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 11. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 11. Now, all these things happen to them as examples. And they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the age have come. So there are valuable spiritual lessons that we can learn from the situation the Israelites found themselves in. There with, with no other outcome that they could see than total annihilation of their people by the Egyptian army. 
through these lessons and the lessons of the Days of Unleavened Bread specifically. Of course, we know that the leaven uh, bread pictures sin. We know that the unleavened bread pictures Jesus Christ or the mind of Jesus Christ and his righteousness, putting that on, putting that in our lives, in our minds, in our hearts, in our bodies. Egypt, we understand, pictures this world. Pharaoh, as the king of Egypt, can picture Satan, the devil. And the Exodus, pictures coming out of this world, changing from our old way of life to God's way of life, repenting, getting the sin out, getting the leaven out, and putting on the unleavened bread of Jesus Christ, the mind of Jesus Christ and his spirit. So the Israelites, again, are faced with an impossible situation, a real dilemma, and they were afraid. So in this sermon, we're going to consider our Red Sea, the Red Sea that we face individually, our personal Red Sea that we have to cross We're going to explore four examples of what some have held back on because of fear. We all have something. We all have things we're trying to overcome, areas of our life that we're trying to change and and, and put behind us and move forward in obedience with. We're going to look at four examples here. And they're relatively broad that many have faced over the years. Then we're going to consider two keys about faith as we surrender in obedience to God. Two keys about faith. So what is our Red Sea? What is your Red Sea? What is my Red Sea? What sins do we have that hold us back? What sins do we have that we haven't crossed over yet? We haven't gotten out of our lives completely yet. That's what I want to focus on. What sins do we hold on to? Because we're afraid of the consequences of obedience. We can't see what's ahead. We don't know what it will be like. We're comfortable with what we've done, our ways that that even though... We may disobey. We're comfortable with that because we know the outcome of that. It's familiar. But obedience and the changing is not familiar. We can't see how God is going to work it out. What sins do we keep because we're afraid of the unknown without it? What leaven do we keep in our lives? What sins do we allow in our life because we fear what's going to happen if we obey? I want to read again from the pulpit commentary. Pulpit commentary on the Bible. It says, they were unused to the life of freedom. It takes time to reach 
uh, to teach those who have always been slaves to appreciate the blessings of the opposite condition. We've been slaves of sin. They carry their slave habits with them into the state of freedom. The Israelites had not as yet had much comfort in their emancipation. Their painful marches had probably been harder work than the brick making in Egypt. Even what they've done so far was more difficult than being slaves in Egypt. They could not as yet feel that it was better to be free because there's a struggle coming out of sin. It feels worse oftentimes than the sin itself. And one I want to read from the biblical illustrator, another uh, commentary, just to help gain a picture of coming out of sin and the Israelites coming out of Egypt and the challenges that they faced with that. The biblical illustrator says that sometimes the circumstances of life appear to favor the pursuit of the old enemies of the soul and overtook them encamping by the sea, it says. The, wor- the world in which we live is Pihahereth, and the devil knows it. But the God who has brought them, uh, brought us from Egypt can bring us from before Pihahereth if we trust him. He is greater than the pursuing enemies. God is greater than the pursuing enemies that we face and the troubles and the trials and the sins that we face that we're trying to overcome. We all have uh, parts of our lives that we need to change. In a sermon Mr. Ames gave on April 15th, uh, 2017, he said that God gave the Israelites challenges so they could learn to overcome with his help. And I'd say the same about our lives. God can give us challenges so that we can learn to overcome with his help. Or whatever challenges that we might have, we can learn to overcome with his help. So for the rest of the sermon, we're going to discuss four examples that can linger because of fear, because of unbelief, because of the the unknown of full surrendered obedience to God. The first is working on or breaking the Sabbath day command and the holy days. Working on the Sabbath and the holy days. Let's turn to Exodus 20. Exodus 20. Of course, this is one of God's commandments. Exodus 20 and verse 8. He says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day 
and hallowed it. God gave us the Sabbath day to worship him. But many times it's very easy to fear the keeping of the Sabbath. Maybe when we first come into God's church, maybe it's something that that we struggle with now. Obeying God and trusting that he will work it out if we surrender to him, if we obey him, if we don't work on the Sabbath day or break the Sabbath or his holy days. It may be that we miss services because of it. Maybe we don't come to services because we work on the Sabbath day. Or maybe we go in Friday night and we could still make it to services. Either way, it's a breaking of the commandment. Or maybe we work at some other time on the Sabbath day. Of course, we know we need to keep the Sabbath. That's not the problem. It's not about ignorance in that way. The problem is often fearing the fear of losing our job. The fear of what am I going to do if I don't have a job? How am I going to take care of my family? Maybe this is our Red Sea. Pharaoh and his army coming after us. It's been many people's Red Sea over the years in the church. How would we deal without our job? How could we handle it? You know, I tell my boss about it and he's serious. He won't, he will fire me if I keep the Sabbath day. If I don't come in. He only wants me to do it once a month. And if I, if I get fired, how am I going to get another job? How am I going to pay my bills? I have a family to take care of. How is it all going to be taken care of? I need to work on the Sabbath. I need to do it. These are the things we we reason to ourselves. These are the things we, we find the reasons, we can find the reasons to break the Sabbath day. And not fully trust that God will take care of things. So the Sabbath day, one example of fear ruling over obedience. And we can apply this to many, many types of sins in our lives. We're going to look at four big picture, broad ones. This can be applied to so many areas, so many sins, virtually probably any sin that you can bring up, this fear of the unknown, of how things are going to work out, not being able to see it. If we could see it work out, it'd be easy to change. It'd be easy to make the adjustment in our life. Another example, so the first one is the Sabbath day. Another is tithing, not tithing fully. Let's turn to uh, Malachi 3. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 8. 
Malachi 3 and verse 8. I mean, this is really an inspiring scripture here. It says, and we're going to read verses 8 and 9. It says, will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. So God is saying, we must tithe. We must give offerings at the appropriate times, with the offerings especially. But we, we, we must tithe a tenth of our income, of our produce. We must tithe. You know, there's a... Uh, uh, Children's prayer. Um, this is, comes from the funny section, I guess, of the, the newspaper. A child's prayer. He says, Dear God, if you give me a genie lamp like Aladdin, I will give you anything you want, God, except my money and my chess set. So that was uh, from one child there. He kind of valued that money, valued his chess set, apparently. Uh, so, and trying to bargain with God. So it's not that we don't know that we should tithe. We know it. And many times, not tithing, someone who doesn't tithe, there's guilt associated with that, like there is with any sin. There's guilt associated. You don't want to do it. You don't want to not tithe. It's just that, how are you going to pay your bills? How am I going to pay my bills? How am I going to pay the rent if I tithe? There's just not enough money there. They think they can't afford to tithe. Can't afford it. We think we need to pay our bills before we tithe. There's a fear of not being able to to pay these things that causes us to disobey. There's a fear of loss, losing what we have, losing, you know, there's a fear of losing our home, fear of having the lights turned off, fear of losing our car. Because if we don't pay the car payment and and we tithe, well, I'm going to lose my car. That's... That's the way it works. That's the only thing that will happen, so far as we can see. How can it possibly work out? The math doesn't work. I only have so much coming in, and this much is going out. How can it possibly work if I tithe, if I take out 10% and then take out 10% for the feasts, the festival tithe. How can it work? It can't work. It's impossible. And I'm going to, if I do that, I'm going to have my electricity turned off. I'm going to lose my car. I am going to lose my house. How can it work? Again, that's as far as 
we can see, then we make the decision or a person makes the decision to sin and not tithe. And again, this can be applied to any area of our life. We have our reasons why we hold on to what we know we shouldn't. So the first is the Sabbath. The second is tithing. The third is holding grudges. A bit different. Holding grudges. Is holding a grudge or bitterness something we can't get past? Holding on to it? Is this our Red Sea? Another uh, letter from a child or a prayer uh, from a child. Um, This child says, Dear God, I bet it is very hard for you to love all of everybody in the world. There are only four people in my family, and I can never do it. So... So this child thinks it's difficult to uh, love everyone in the world because it's difficult even to love the people in your own family sometimes. Let's turn to Leviticus 19. Leviticus 19. And verse 18. Grudges. <clears throat> You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the eternal. We shall not bear grudges and hold on to to hatred toward anybody, hold on to something that somebody did to us one time or multiple times. Let's turn uh, now to Matthew 6 and verse 14. Matthew 6, verse 14. And see the danger of this. Maybe we can obey in in every aspect of our lives when we think directly about the, the commandments. But we have problems letting things go with people, with others. Matthew 6 and verse 14. Right after the uh, sample prayer that Jesus Christ gave, Matthew 6 verse 14, he says, For if you forgive men their trespasses, if we can forgive men of the things that they've done, and done specifically against us, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Our salvation depends on it. Our salvation, our eternal life depends on whether or not we can let go of that thing that that person did to us. And if we can forgive them. But holding on to this becomes a part of who we are oftentimes. It's difficult to imagine life without holding on to this. 
this, this bitterness, this grudge, this feeling of anger toward this person. Difficult to let it go. Difficult to see who we are without it. We may have held on to it for years. And not know how to get rid of it now. And it's a comfort to us. I want to read from Psychology Today. Uh, it's an article about grudges. It says, many people hold grudges deep ones that can last a lifetime. Many are unable to let go of their anger they feel towards those who wronged them in the past. Somebody who did something wrong against us in the past. Even though they have a strong desire, they want to let it go. And they put forth concerted effort to do so, but have trouble letting it go. Again, this is a part of our salvation so that we can be forgiven. The article goes on and says, to begin with, grudges come with an identity. I identify, you identify with it after a period of time. It's a part of your thinking. When you think about this person, that's all that can come to mind. With our grudge intact, we know who we are, the article continues. We know who we are. We're comfortable with that. We're a person who's been wronged and wronged by, by this individual or this group or, or whatever it is. Continuing, the article says, we have to be willing to drop the I who was mistreated. We have to be willing to drop the person, drop that part of us that was mistreated and step into a new version of ourselves, the article says. One we don't know yet. A fear of the unknown. A fear of what it will be like without that. Without that comfort that, that we took in feeling wronged, in holding that grudge or that bitterness toward that person. There's a fear of the unknown. There's a certain comfort that comes with holding on to it. There's a fear that if we forgive them, if we let it go, that they'll get away with it. And we can't let them just get away with it. We need to hold on to it. It's the only way. By me holding this grudge against you or a person, by me holding this grudge against someone, that person, it's the only way they'll know that what they've done is wrong. If I let it go, they'll think they got away with it. They think it's okay. They think they can just do it again and again. We're afraid the other person won't suffer enough. If we treat them with kindness, we can't let them think that what they did was okay. If I forgive them, if I treat them with kindness and love, 
then they'll think that they can get away with this all the time and that it's okay. These are the thoughts that can be held on to. These fear, fearful thoughts of what's going to happen if I fully surrender in obedience to God. So we continue to disobey God and we don't let him take care of it the way he wants to. We have an impossible situation. We don't know what it's going to be like without that grudge, without that without that bitterness toward them. We can't just let them get away with it. There's a fear of the unknown. We don't know what to do. So we continue to disobey in that regard. So the first is the Sabbath. The second is tithing. And the third example that we're looking at here is holding grudges. The fourth, I suspect, is even wider, um, and that is addiction. And I'm not just talking about physical addiction to uh, drugs and alcohol or substances, necessarily. Certainly that's a part of it. But we'll see. We want to think much bigger with this. Let's go to Exodus 20 and verse 3. Exodus 20 and verse 3. Addiction. And addiction is a very, very powerful thing especially when it comes to substance abuse. Um, and that's, again, not necessarily what I want to focus on here. Um, any Anyone with uh, alcohol or drug addiction, opioid addiction, should get professional help. Talk to your minister about it and get professional help to overcome so we can change, so we can be a part of God's kingdom. So we can be there in the first resurrection. Exodus 20 and verse 3. He says, you shall have no other gods before me. Verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image of any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the water beneath the earth, you shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I am the eternal, I am a jealous God, uh, visiting the iniquities of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Of course, we think about this in terms of, of idolatry, in terms of you know bowing down to a, a physical idol. Well, this is what addiction is covetousness for that thing, whatever that is, whatever it is in our life that we want to hold on to, that we don't want to let go of, that we that we like the feeling of, that we, when we get to it, when we do it, whatever it is. There's so many types of things that people can be addicted to that we'll look at a few examples of that. But we put these things before our Creator, before our God, 
Verse 6 continues, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. So there are many types of addiction. Again, I, I don't, we're not just focused on drugs and alcohol. I want to read the definition of, of addiction. It says, uh, definition is the fact or condition of being addicted to a particular substance, thing, or activity. We could be addicted to almost anything. So a uh, website uh, entitled Everyday Health gives eight addictions that people, uh, that many people have problems with. One is gambling. Two, sex addiction or pornography. Three, internet addiction, internet addiction. Shopping addiction, video game addiction, plastic surgery addiction, binge eating addiction, and risky behavior addiction that is always and constantly seeking the next thrill. Whatever it is in our life, what's in our life that, that we may put before God? that we bow down to instead of to God, that we can't see our life without, or maybe we've tried to overcome, but we haven't been able to. And when we try to overcome, we don't know what life will be like without it. And we'll miss whatever that is. We can't see what it will be like. We fear the unknown. We fear what's ahead that we, we can't see, we don't know. I could think about some others. Watching too much TV. We are going to be kings and priests in God's kingdom. And television can be addictive. It can really be addictive. We just keep watching and watching and whatever Wasting time. It's very easy to do when we could be doing something productive. We could be writing cards of encouragement. We could be studying God's word. We could be praying. We could be helping someone, calling someone on the phone, being a part of the work, doing, using the talents that God has given us. Yet we've been so used to maybe doing the things we shouldn't for for years of course we talked about drug and alcohol addiction but then of course prescription drugs as well something to to keep in mind that you know oftentimes it needs professional help but we can ask god for help we can ask him for strength the problem is we don't stop because it, addiction is very deep and there's reasons why we keep doing it. There's reasons we keep going back to that. It feels good. It'll hurt. It'll tear us up if we stop. There's pain associated with it. There's fighting in the mind that's associated with stopping. We fear the loss of the feeling that it gives us. We can't imagine life without that 
pacifier. We can't imagine it. So we keep doing it and we know we shouldn't. And we'd rather the, the, to have the benefits than to deal, than, than the guilt. We'd rather keep doing it. Ultimately is what it comes down to. We'd rather keep doing it than overcome. Because we don't know what's on the other side. We don't know what's ahead. So we've looked at four examples. Uh, The Sabbath day. We've looked at tithing. We've looked at holding grudges and addictions. Four examples of red seas that some get bogged down at, in part because of fear and unbelief. And we don't know and we can't see what's ahead. They're our Red Sea. Of course, there are many more than just these four that we've talked about. If you aren't convicted by one of these, then what's the thing you're still fighting? What's the thing that you haven't let go of yet? What's the thing I haven't let go of yet? I ask myself that, especially during these days of unleavened bread when we're trying to put sin out of our lives. I want to argue that oftentimes the reason we don't let it go is because we truly and we truly don't believe God as deeply as we need to. And that's what I want to focus on for the rest of the sermon here are the keys to faith, two keys in faith that we can overcome, that we can change, that we can put it behind us. We need it behind us so that we can be a part of God's kingdom. We need it behind us so that we can do the most we can in the kingdom of God and we can overcome now. If we did see what God had in store for us and we fully believed that, we would change and we will change. If we could see and truly believed it, then we would drop it and we would head toward the reward. Let's turn to Hebrews 3. And we're, we're, you know, in the, so far we're kind of have come down in this sermon. Uh, we've come down, but we're going to bring it back up. We're going to bring it back up. Maybe it's been discouraging, but we're going to look at the encouraging aspect of this as well. Hebrews 3 and verse 12. <clears throat> speaking of the ancient Israelites, speaking of them as they were at, during this very time, of coming out of Egypt. Verse 12 of Hebrews 3. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God, in exhorting, but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. 
while it is said today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who having heard rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? With Now with whom was he very angry 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that he would, that they would not enter his rest, but those who did not obey? Those who did not obey. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Our sin is often tied to unbelief. Which brings us to the first point, the first key in regard to faith, in regard to overcoming. And that faith is about obeying and trusting God. It's about obeying Him. It's not just a feeling. It's, it's about surrendering to Him, obeying Him when we can't see what's in front of us, when we can't see the outcome of it. That's what faith is. Let's turn to Hebrews 11 and verse 6. Hebrews 11, verse 6. He says, without, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who overcomes, I'm sorry, for he who comes to God must believe that he, he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And again, about obeying, even when we can't see. That's the faith that we need to have. Verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go, uh, to go out to the place where he would receive as an inheritance, he went out not knowing where he was going. He went out not knowing what was going to happen, not knowing the results of it, but that God said to do it, and that's what Abraham did. He dropped his life where he, where he was, and he obeyed, and he left not knowing what was going to happen, not knowing where he was going. It was that faith that was accounted to him righteousness. That faith was. Let's turn to Daniel 3. Daniel 3. And verse... Uh, 16. And this is, uh, we've read this many times, but this is so powerful. This is so encouraging. This gives us courage to move forward. These examples are, are incredible to show us what to do, to show us how to overcome when we don't, when we can't see ahead, when we don't know what the outcome is going to be like if we obey. So here we have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and verse 16, first they were, they were told to bow down to this idol. And they said, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Verse 17, if that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. God can do it. We don't need to obey you. We don't need to disobey God. Because God can take care. God can take care of this whole situation. He can deliver us from this fire you're threatening to put us in. 
And he can do whatever he wants to do. We don't know how he's going to do it. We don't see it yet, but God can do it. And verse 17. And he will deliver us from your hand, O king. It's going to happen. It's going to happen whether you want it to or don't want it to, whether you throw us in the fire, whether we die, whatever the deal is, we're not going to disobey God. And we're not going to surrender to you. We worship our God and we will obey him. And we don't care what the consequences are. God is able to deliver us and he will deliver us. And and even if he doesn't, verse 18, let it be known to you, O king, that we don't fear you. We're not going to serve your gods. I don't care. We don't care. We don't care. We're going to obey God no matter what. We can't see the outcome. We don't know what it looks like. We don't know what it's going to feel like. But we're still going to obey. What an incredible example, different than the Israelites, who feared, who wanted to go back, who wanted to hold on to what they had in Egypt. Who asked Moses why he even got involved. Why did they have to go free? They were better off in Egypt. Better off with their sins. That's the thing. Feeling that we, we want to hold on to that. Because we don't know what's ahead. But the faith is obeying even when we can't see. Even when we don't know the outcome. We don't know what it's going to feel like. Trusting that God loves us. That He will take care. That He will fill in the gaps. That He will make a way for us. This is a wonderful example here in Daniel. Wonderful example. Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 and verse 24. Hebrews 11 and verse 24. So we know that the Israelites feared the situation in front of them. Didn't know what to do. While Moses, on the other hand, was different. Moses believed God. And here we have in the faith chapter, Moses written about, and even specifically about the situation and the story that we're talking about there at the Red Sea. Verse 24, by faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called Pharaoh's daughter, the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer the affliction with the people of God than to to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. Moses saw what was ahead. He had his eyes on that. His focus was on that. And he didn't let anything else get in his way. Here's a wonderful example for us. Incredible example that we can follow. Looking to the reward, seeing it clearly. By faith, verse 27, he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. The Israelites feared, but Moses didn't. Moses didn't know the answer. He didn't know what was going to happen. He he knew that God said that, that ultimately Pharaoh and the Egyptians would honor God and know that he's the eternal. But he did not know what was coming. 
And again, he was in the same impossible situation that the Israelites found themselves in. But verse 27, by faith he forsook Egypt, and he fearing, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. He looked to God, and that's what we need to do in whatever our Red Sea is. Looking to God. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, whereas the Egyptians attempting to do so were drowned. Moses believed. Moses believed God and trusted him. So the first key in regard to faith in crossing our Red Sea is that faith is obeying God even when we can't see, even when we don't know what's ahead. Obeying and trusting that he'll work it out. Key number two is that God will deliver and trusting that Believing that, knowing it, knowing it so much that we take the action we need to take to put that sin behind us. To put it entirely behind us in our life. And trusting, even though we don't know what's ahead, even though we don't know what's coming, even though we don't know how it's going to feel, even though we know there's going to be difficult times ahead... As the one commentary mentioned, it was, it was more difficult for the Israelites as they were trampling out of the, out of Egypt than it was to be comfortable back where they were slaves. And now having to deal with this, the, the Egyptian army coming and the, the sea in front of them. Key number two is that God will deliver. He will make a way. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10. And verse 11, 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 11. Now, now all these things happened to them as examples, and we read that, as they were written for our admonition upon whom the end of the ages will come, have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you such as is common to man, except such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with temptation, with the temptation, he will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. God will always provide a way. And when we obey, he will take care of it for us. He will provide a way for us to overcome, to change. He will provide, he will make the path for us. And faith is trusting that he will do it. Trusting in obedience, stepping out in faith that he will make the path for us. He will clear the way. He will make the impossible possible. 
Whatever he works out will be for our good. It will be because he loves us and we're obeying him. We must believe that he will take care of it. Let's go to 2 Timothy 1. 2 Timothy 1 and verse 7. Verse 6. Therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying out of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear. These are things we should not fear with the Spirit of God working in us as we surrender to His Spirit, as we surrender to Him. He has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. We can trust God. We can trust Him fully and know that He will take care. And we have this incredible example of the Israelites coming out of Egypt. Let's go to Isaiah 51. Isaiah 51 and verse 7. Isaiah 51 verse 7. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, you people in whose heart is my law. That's us. Do not fear the reproach of men, nor be afraid of their insults. The reproach of men. Our boss who tells us that if we work on the Sabbath, we're going to get fired. The company that's going to shut off our lights if we don't tithe, whatever it is. The person that we can't just let let get away with it. Let them get away with it. Let them do it, whatever. We need to let God work through us and us reflect His Spirit his way of life. Nor be afraid of their insults. Verse 8, For the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool. Let God take care of it. He will take care of it, and we don't need to worry about it. Verse 12, I, even I, who uh, am he who comforts you, who are you that you should be afraid of a man who will die, and, and of the son of man, who is made like the grass, verse 13. And you forget the eternal, your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth, and you have feared continually every day because of the fury of the oppressor when he is prepared to destroy. And where is the fury of the oppressor? God takes care of it. Verse 15, but I am the eternal, your God, who divided the sea, whose waves roared. The eternal of hosts is his name. An article written by Dr. Meredith entitled, Cry Out for the Gifts of the Spirit. He says, the great God showed his mighty power in helping the ancient Israelites cross the Red Sea letting them walk right down across the seabed as he held back towering tons of water. And he destroyed their vengeful foes. God has intervened. He will intervene. We have this incredible example of the Israelites there at the Red Sea. The Israelites were afraid, but Moses had faith. 
Moses believed God. I want to read from the pulpit commentary again about Moses' situation as we bring this to a close. The pulpit uh, commentary says, Moses, on the other hand, remained firm, did not blench, though like the people he felt the need of crying to God for aid, yet he did so from a different spirit than them. He with faith, they in panic, terror, without faith. He, sure that God would somehow grant salvation, they expecting nothing less than almost immediate death. What is surprising is the noble courage and confidence of Moses. Moses, though only vaguely informed what God was going to do, is perfectly certain that all will go well. Moses was certain that all would turn out okay. How the result would be achieved, he did not know. But he is sure that the, that Israel will be delivered and Egypt discomfited. His people have no reason to fear. Moses looked ahead. Moses looked to the reward. We can look to the reward and know that God will take care of it for us. Let's go to Exodus 14 in closing. We've looked at four examples of sin that can be our Red Sea. We've looked at two keys of faith. The first, that faith is obeying God even when we can't see what's ahead. And the second is that God will deliver. God will deliver. He will take care. And we can trust that. And we have incredible examples to look to, to know how to react, to know how to overcome And let God work it out regardless of the fear. And put that behind us and move forward. Verse 13 of Exodus 14. Here we have Moses. And Moses said to the people, right there, Pharaoh's armies, right there in front of them, the sea they can't cross, the mountains they can't cross. What's going to happen? We know the story, but right here we'll look at it. Verse 13, And Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. Don't be afraid. You've expressed this fear. Don't be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the ever-living one, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. For the eternal will fight for you, and he, and you shall hold your peace. And the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward. They can't see it, but go forward. Keep moving forward in obedience to God. But lift up your rod and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, and the children of Israel shall go on dry land through the midst of the sea. The impossible. The impossible happened. They could not see it coming. Moses didn't know what was coming. 
God made the impossible possible. He will do the same for us. Verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord And the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night and made the sea into dry land and the waters were divided. When has that happened? So the children of Israel went out into the midst of the dry ground, midst of the sea on the dry ground, and the waters were a wall to them on their right and on their left. Verse 23, and the Egyptians pursued and went after them into the midst of the sea and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen. They're coming after them even when this incredible miracle has happened. There can still be that fear associated with it, but again, there doesn't need to be. Moses didn't have that. And we don't need to have that. Verse 25, and he took off their chariot wheels It keeps getting worse for the Egyptians. And he took off their chariot wheels so that they drove them into the, uh, uh, drove them with difficulty. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from the face of Israel for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Verse 27. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and when the morning appeared, the sea returned to its full depth and the Egyptians were fleeing while the Egyptians were fleeing into it. So the Eternal overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea, and the waters returned and covered the chariots and horsemen and all the army that came into the sea after them, not so much as one of them remained. God took care of all of it. He gave them an out. He gave them a place to go. He took care of the Israelites. Then He crushed their enemies. If it was up to the Israelites, they would have gone back to Egypt as slaves if they wouldn't have been massacred there. But Moses moved forward in obedience and thereby so did the people and God saved them and protected them. Verse 29, but the children of Israel had walked on dry land in the midst of the sea and the waters were a wall to them on their right and on their left. So the eternal saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians and saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel, uh, Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Thus Israel saw the great work which the Eternal had done in Egypt. So the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and His servant Moses. God gave a way of escape for the Israelites to cross the Red Sea. God will do the same thing for us. If He did it for these carnal Israelites... How much more will he do that for us?